and welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, the arable podcast hosted by me, Alice Dyer, and brought to you by The Crop Tech Show, Arable Farming Magazine, and sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company. Before we get started on today's episode, don't forget if you're on the basis register, you can claim one CPD point for tuning in by emailing the name of the podcast and your account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. In Boris Johnson's very first speech as Prime Minister in 2019, he vowed to liberate the UK's bioscience sector from anti-GM rules. Now, in short, that means that gene-edited crops could potentially be grown here in the UK if regulations were changed and they were no longer classed as genetically modified crops. In January this year, in what felt like almost as soon as the Brexit transition period was over, DEFRA launched its public consultation on gene editing. Since then, there have been many questions raised by farmers and the wider industry about what the technology could offer us. So, in this episode, we aim to answer some of those questions that you have on the science behind gene-edited crops. We're going to find out more about gene-edited crops already being grown in other countries around the world address the potential problems associated with narrowing the gene pool of crops even further, and of course the very real possibility that the public will not want to eat gene-edited food. Our first guest today is Dr Nicola Patron, Research Leader in Plant Biotechnology at the Earlham Institute. She's going to answer some concerns that have been voiced about mutations developing in gene-edited crops and also talk about some of the traits she and her team have been working on. Hiya, Nicola. Hi, Alice. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good, good. So, Nicola, for those of our listeners that aren't sure, um, in layman's terms, what is the difference between a genetically edited crop and a genetically modified crop? Okay, so um, so one of the complications of answering that question is there's not like a universally agreed term for genetically modified because all of the crops that we have have been modified from, you know, the wild relatives that they started out as. So that domestication of crops began, you know, over 10,000 years ago. Um, and that process of domestication and breeding resulted in enormous changes to the genetic material of plants and animals. And um, breeding is then used lots of different technologies to produce lots of crop varieties with usable traits, increased yield, good flavour, resistance to disease. And all of those make significant modifications to the genome. So scientifically, we can kind of consider everything that humans have touched to be modified in, in the way that they didn't evolve, you know, in the field by themselves. But what people refer to as genetic modification is a technology that came about in the 1980s that um, gave scientists the ability to add individual specific genes that conferred a trait, for example, resistance to pests, into a plant. So that became known as genetic modification. Um, And they're those plants that are now quite widely grown by about um, 17 million farmers, I think, in 29 countries worldwide, grow genetically modified crops or or what. it's kind of legally called or you know in the media called genetically modified crops yeah so genome editing um is different uh, and genome editing tools can be applied in different ways but the most common one is just to make a change to a specific dna sequence so that might just be changing so mutating editing um 
just maybe a single base of that existing DNA, and those changes can be made without introducing any new DNA into the genome. So it's the same kind of editing you think about as if you were kind of editing a letter or something like that. It's like you're editing something that's already there, just changing one thing to another. And that, that kind of um, change, that kind of mutation, is exactly the same type of mutation that happens all the time, naturally, and um, um, and people that know a lot about breeding will also be aware about mutation breeding that's been around since the 1930s, 1940s, um, and that also produces those small changes in that existing DNA. Okay, and it's my understanding that using gene editing, um, the the end product, so the plant, is indistinguishable genetically to a plant that's been bred conventionally. It, it can be indistinguishable. Obviously, if you're editing, if you if you have a variety and you know that it has a particular mutation, you can edit another. You could edit another variety to have that mutation, and it would be indistinguishable from each other. Um, but obviously, if you mutate something to be, I don't know, in, in some to be a version of something that uh, doesn't exist in another existing variety, you would be able just to dis- distinguish it because there would be a mutation at that type of the DNA. But, but, but I think the point that people are making there is that you can make exact same changes as that you can make that will occur naturally or that you could make by mutation breeding. They, they, they can be indistinguishable from each other and there is the potential to do that. For, and you might want to do that for various reasons. Yeah, and that was kind of my next question, really, because another concern I've heard um, growers talk about is, you know, mutations in the field and cross-pollination and things like that. Um, Is this likely to be more of a problem in gene-edited crops than conventional cultivars? Um, So plants of the same species or sometimes very closely related species can cross-pollinate. Genome-edited plants have fewer genetic changes in their genome relative to their parent varieties and the conventionally bred plant. Um, but there's nothing about a genome editing plant that makes cross-pollination more likely. Uh, so it would be the same as growing, you know, if you've got a variety and someone else is growing a different variety next to you, regardless of how that variety has uh, been made, there's, not, there's nothing more or less likely for cross-pollination. But it, what is probably more important is that... Um, most of the crops that we grow that set seed self-pollinate, so the individual plant pollinates itself. So, for example, for wheat, 99% of the wheat in a field will be just be pollinating themselves. So pollen from neighbouring plants, let alone neighbouring field, doesn't really have much of an impact on on the genetics of that. So I can imagine that might be really important for seed producers, so they tend to produce seed you know, to keep their seed lines really pure away from other plants that are pollinating. But otherwise, when you're just growing it, if you're not going to replant that seed, that even if it does happen to be pollinated occasionally, it's not really particularly relevant. And then, um, and then for crops, there's many other crops that don't we don't you know really collect or set seeds from, like potatoes. They're clonally propagated by tubers, so those they don't flower in the field. So there's no risk of cross pollination at all. Yeah, that's a really good point. And. Mm. In terms of what it could potentially deliver us, you know, we hear a lot about uh, what we'd like to see. So maybe flea beetle resistant oilseed rape or virus resistant sugar beets been quite a big one recently. But but are there any genes or traits that are sort of at the front of the queue um, if gene editing does get the green light from government that you're aware of? So I I guess genome editing has 
the first crops that were genome edited were actually take actually done in around the late 1990s. So there are quite a lot of proof of concept experiments that have been done in universities and um, things that are kind of ripe to be taken forward to be developed into crop varieties already. And then there's also genome edited plants that are already coming into the market in other countries and quite a pipeline of new traits that are going to be launched there in the next few years that could potentially also be launched um, in the UK as well. So, um, you know, that includes um, uh, soybean plants, not that there's lots of soybean grown in the UK, but there is some, with mutations that inactivate a gene um, that reduce the content of linoleic acid. So linoleic acid is the acid that hydrogenates to the trans fatty acids that we hear a lot of that have, that have high health risks associated with them. And those edited plants instead accumulate a healthy oleic acid. So there's, you know, lots of... Um, consumer traits that are coming, uh, especially to do with health. Also, uh, there's a lot of interest in um, removing um, genes that make plants susceptible to disease so that they can no longer be affected by those pathogens. So that's they're really attractive, I think, um, because those plants are less likely to require applications of pesticides and fungicides, and that decreases the cost of growing for the farmer and also uh, decreases the chemical residues on the plants, which is something consumers may be concerned about, but obviously has a really, um, really good impact for the uh, reducing applications of agrochemicals, which is an essential part of reducing um, the amount of carbon required to produce crops and also uh, um, reducing... Um, sprays that might um, impact on other biodiversity around crops as well. So I think I think there's a, at least from a scientific point of view, there's a lot of interest in traits um, that are important for growers, but also that are important for increasing the sustainability of farmers and um, helping to grow foods that are healthier to eat. Yeah. And you and your team at the Earlham Institute have been working on gene edited crops for a while now. What kind of traits have you been looking at? Yeah, so um, we've done a lot of work on the technology itself. So um, we've done um, work on improving the methods and the tools for making and verifying those genome edited plants. And that's kind of been where our expertise has been. But we've also been involved in a number of collaborations uh, working directly in plants. So last year, um, we published a story that was a, uh, a work that we were doing in potatoes. So in those potatoes, we were looking to see whether we could, um, if we made just a couple of tiny changes in a gene or a couple of genes, that we could change the um, the type of carbohydrates that they make. So um, people might have heard about resistant starches and their uh healthier because they are known to increase insulin sensitivity and decrease the risk of developing type 2 diabetes so um we did some work on altering the starch basically the length of the starch molecules that accumulate in potato tubers um so yeah we've done some work there we've done um some work in uh with in collaboration with some scientists at the john Innes center looking at some other crops related to some harvest related traits in barley as well Great stuff. And in a minute, we'll be hearing about some of the traits that other countries are already using. Thank you very much, Nicola. Bye, nice to meet you, Alan. And you, thank you. As Nicola just alluded to, there are a lot of gene-edited crops already being grown around the world. And Dr Phil Howell, Head of Cereals Pre-Breeding at NIAB, is going to tell us a bit more about some of those. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. 
just uh, living the lockdown life still. Yeah. Now, Boris famously said um, that the UK was going to kind of lead the way with gene-edited crops and so on, but actually a number of other countries are having the same discussions as the UK on genome editing policy. Uh, but where is this technology already being used and what type of crops are being grown? I know that at the DEFRA press briefing... Um, Gideon Henderson spoke a lot about the healthy heart tomato in Japan, but I can't help but think there's crops out there already being grown that have more agronomic benefits. Sure, yeah. Um, so I guess similar to the GM situation, the, the countries with the big acreages uh, would be uh, across North America and Latin America. Um, so... The US and Canada um, essentially don't regulate gene editing. They don't class it the same as, as GMO. So there's a much lighter, there is regulation, but it's much lighter touch. Um, Argentina was actually the first country to, to come out with this. So Argentina led the way on this. Um, Israel uh, also doesn't regulate the same as GM. And then Japan and Australia are the other countries. Um, but in terms of crops being cultivated it's relatively recent so the first um the first crop that's cultivated was uh, a soybean um in 2019 in the u.s which is um uh, an altered fatty acid profile um and they've actually all of all of the harvest of the 2020 crop is, is now being processed by a, a, a single mill. So it's all um, it's all identity preserved. It's all in like a closed loop situation. Um, but the pipelines are, are obviously where the promise is. So there's a huge pipeline of, of products um, across a huge range of crops. So um, so in corn and soybean and canola, so big broad acre crops, um, there are high fiber wheat types in the pipeline um and the, the sort of traits that they're talking about changing are things like um nutritional profile um healthier products as as was alluded to with the tomato uh, and high fiber wheat obviously um some industrial uses so changing the oils in in some oil seeds to make them more suitable for for biopolymers and perhaps even bioplastics, uh, removing anti-nutritionals in some forage crops like um, lucerne or alfalfa, as they call it in the States, um, disease-resistance traits, um, some which help with storage, so potatoes that um, that produce lower levels of sugar in storage, which means they, they stay fresher for longer, um, and some relief flavour and shelf life and fruits and vegetables so a huge range of, of crops and traits. Yeah no that's really very varied and I thought it was interesting when I was doing my background research I saw in the USA they're actually using gene editing as a marketing tool because it doesn't fall into kind of the GM crop category and I thought that was quite a stark difference to you know Europe's yeah. opinions. Yeah um, yeah, it's an interesting way. I mean, when, when the first GM products were launched in Europe, um, they were actively marketed as being GM. It was the flavour saver tomato. Um, and 
I can't remember which supermarket it was, but one supermarket had it on an exclusive. Uh, and it was tomato puree that, um, because of the trade, meant that you, to generate the puree, you needed less energy. So the, the soluble um, solids content was higher. Um, so it's cheaper to make and greener to make the puree than, than conventional tomatoes. Um, but then everything changed with, with GM. So, so hopefully, uh, I think we, the same mistakes won't be made again with gene editing. Yeah, absolutely. In terms, of, in terms of PR and marketing. Yeah. And when it comes to Europe, am I right in thinking they're planning a review as well? Yes. Um, so there was the quite controversial ruling by the European Court of Justice, um, which said not only that gene editing is, is a GMO, but that other forms of making mutants are GMO. Mm. So other forms have been widely used by breeders and geneticists for you know, 60 or 70 years. Um, pretty much after that declaration was made, the European Commission actually ordered a review, and that's, that's due to report back in April this year. Okay. Um, so whether the EU remains um, on as a block um, labelling bringing gene editing and GMO in together is the same thing after April that that remains to be seen I suspect it might it might be up to each member state's discretion yes at the moment Scotland are very adamant to stay in line with the EU and their rules um so it'll be quite interesting to see what happens in terms of um challenges with the internal market and exports and everything like that and one concern um that a lot of people have voiced is that when it comes to these new varieties that could potentially be developed, it's just giving more control to kind of the big ag chem seed companies. But as far as I understand, there's actually quite a few startups behind this research. So who is currently dominating the market when it comes to gene edited crops? Well, the products that have been launched so far have come from these smaller companies, these startups. Um, Corteva have a, a product coming out this year, so a, a waxy corn variety with a, a, an altered starch. But there are waxy corns already out there which, which have been bred conventionally. This is just a, another way of doing it. And that's kind of part of the point of gene editing. You can you can create products that that are indistinguishable from those that you create with plant breeding. And that's, that's sort of the, the point of... Um, public consultation is, is to explore that that possibility that possibility wasn't really ever the case for for sort of classic gmo where there's a foreign gene that was introduced and a foreign gene that was in the product um but to go back to your question so the big the big ag chem seed companies are very much interested in in these technologies um and are investing heavily in them and there will be products for those but they they tend they seem to be I mean, just as a broad sweeping statement, they seem to be targeting the crops that they always target. So they're going for the, the big acreages of, of row crops. Um, so soybean, canola, um, cereals, maize, rice, this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, where these startups, I mean, the startups, there is some overlap. So these, these startups are in some cases targeting those, but in other cases targeting niche crops that, are almost too small usually for the large companies to be involved with. 
Um, so that's why we're seeing so many products and pipelines for things like um, legumes and fruits and vegetables um, and some of the more niche all seed crops. Um, so one company are developing a crop called False Flax or Camelina, um, they're at, which isn't really grown as a, as a crop at all yet, but they're, they're very much looking at how to make this a crop and then how to make this a, a gene edited crop. Um, they're, they're doing a lot of research into that. So the, the smaller companies, um, I've got a list of names here. So Inari, Cybus, Calixt, Caribou Biosciences, Benton Hill, Yield 10. They're not household names by any means yet um, yeah. compared to you know, Syngenta, uh, Basef, Bayer, um, Cultiva, who were DuPont, Pioneer. Um, so they're, they're, they're new players on the block, but they've the bulk of the intellectual property in terms of new patents and, and new products is with the smaller companies, not the larger ones. Okay. And, and I guess the, the analogy would be, um, I mean, similar trends have been seen in, in some of the pharmaceutical industries. So you've got startup companies who are the risk takers, the innovators, the disruptors, um, who have lots and lots of ideas, um, but maybe aren't so great at marketing. Yeah. And then the bigger players come in and they, they either buy the smaller companies or they have a joint venture with them and, and they help with the distribution, the scale-up, the production. So I think we might see that sort of thing happening as well. Okay, so very much a collaboration in some cases. And I, I guess this then kind of leads to affordability. Um, so we're often told... Things like CRISPR um, are a relatively cheap means of plant breeding, but I can't help but think that if we did have gene-edited varieties, they'd probably be more expensive than conventional ones. Is that fair to say? It's probably fair to guess, but I don't actually know if that's the case. Um, Certainly, the costs involved with releasing a gene-edited variety, I've seen someone say it's... um, it's about ten percent of the cost of the equivalent GMO. Oh, blimey! So it's massively cheaper, yeah. which is one reason why you're getting startups in this space, and it's not just the big, the big Adkin companies with big wall chests, um, lots of money to, to invest. Um, so that barrier to to entering the market is is very much reduced. Um, I saw Syngenta write something that they said it. They think it might take five for a gene edited crop. It might take five years from starting field testing to commercialization, but for GM, then it would be twelve. Okay. So it would be a lot quicker, which again reduces reduces the cost. But obviously, that will depend on the crop. It'll depend on the trait. And it'll depend on the, the country you're commercializing in. Um, with conventional breeding. Uh, a lot of the delay in a new variety reaching the marketplace is actually the scale-up during seed production, the registration trials, um, which, remember, conventional varieties go through registration trials as well. It's, you can't just invent a new variety and, and sell it. Um, they, go, they go through quite a lot of testing um, before they're, they're put on the recommended list, the national list, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so those phases, they're kind of 
they're there to test that the variety is really good enough across a whole range of environments and across different seasons and, and how resilient the, the performance is. Um, and they're also necessary for field crops to literally to bulk up enough seed to, to, to reach the market. So, so those sorts of things, I think, will still go at the same pace. It's the almost the invention phase, um, the very early testing that, that will be a lot quicker. Yeah. And do you think that, obviously, not including things like organic um, or specialist varieties, but do you think this could potentially replace conventional plant breeding eventually? Yeah, I think the lines the lines will be blurred. Um, so for, for some markets and some crops, you, you might stay with conventional breeding. Um, for other things, you might go for gene editing. You might be flip-flopping between them. Um, so I think, I mean, uh, you asked, will, will we end up with a two-tier system? Well, I think in the short term we might, um, but it'll be led by marketing. Um, if there's acceptance that gene-edited crops uh, really are equivalent to conventional crops, then there won't be any need to, to market them any differently. Yeah. Um, I think there'll still be a two-tier system with organic against conventional, but conventional might include gene-edited yeah. in the future. That actually leads perfectly on to my next couple of guests who are going to talk a bit more about consumer acceptance um, of this type of technology. So thank you very much, Phil. Brilliant. Great. Good to speak to you. And you. Thank you. I'm Natalie Wood, you're as country arable agronomist, and I'm here to remind you about fertiliser quality characteristics. The three main things you need in a good quality fertiliser are a high strength score, meaning it can be spread over large about widths, uniformity of size and shape of the particles for even spreading and therefore even crops, and finally bulk density. Think ping pong ball versus golf ball. The heavier, denser particles will spread further and be less affected by wind. Yarabella Axan has all these qualities and more. Visit our website yara.co.uk for more information. Now for our next guest, he does not share the same views as Nicola and Phil. Um, We've got Patrick Holden here, who's an organic farmer and founder of the Sustainable Food Trust. He believes that gene editing is not the route the UK should be taking if we want to produce sustainable food. Hi Patrick, how are you doing? I am doing just fine. Excellent. So Patrick, the Sustainable Food Trust, which you're the founder of, was one of the organisations that recently signed a letter which was sent out to all of the UK supermarkets asking them to very carefully consider stocking food on their shelves which was grown using GM technology. So why do you think that gene editing should remain in the same camp as GM crops in this case? Well, let me just first of all say before I answer that question that I believe that in relation to all new technologies which can be used for good or ill in farming and in other areas of public life, we need to keep an open mind and not be ideological in our opposition to them uh, without very careful consideration. So in relation to genetic engineering, I was agnostic, this is back in the 90s now, and spent quite a lot of time 
looking at the pros and cons, looking at the way they were being used at the time, and looking at whether there was any uh, public uh, benefit or disbenefit arising from their use, and concluded that actually at that time, and I believe it's still the case is still the same today, that genetically engineers do not serve the public interest or the interest of the environment. So having thought long and hard and looked at all the issues, I concluded, and at the time I was working for the Soil Association, uh, that ethically engineered crops did not have a place um, in agriculture at that time, and I believe it's still the case today. Um, gene editing uh, is a more sophisticated process. It arises from our uh, ability to map the genome, uh, which of course was now what, 20 years ago, or more than that. And I believe that it has led to a, uh, the development of a wrong direction in plant and animal breeding. And so even though it may be that in the short term, the plant scientists can work miracles uh, on uh, increasing nutrient content or desistant diseases or other apparently beneficial impacts from gene editing of plants, uh, in the long term, it will not be best for the agricultural community or the public. As far as why we signed the letter is concerned, that was the principal reason. But again, I want to stress it wasn't out of any ideological objection. It was a considered opinion after having looked at the pros and cons. And do you think this kind of technology, I mean, some people argue that this is promoting much more sustainable farming because we might be able to reduce our use of ag chem. Um, but then a lot of other people are saying that we're just relying on a single solution again, uh, which is where problems have stemmed from in the past. So do you think that this is potentially promoting unsustainable farming practices again? Yes, but I don't want to blame the farmers for that. I mean, I salute the arable farmers of the UK, I think that uh, they, and I'm, you know, I'm an arable farmer myself on a very small scale, uh, have responded uh, perfectly sensibly to all the signals that we've been given in the whole post-world uh, chapter of agricultural history. But if you look at the context of today, where we have existential threats arising from climate change, from biodiversity loss, and indeed increasingly from uh, challenges to public health, uh, incidents of many diseases which were previously uncommon, which now appear to be becoming very common. I think one has to look at the way in which farmers should respond to those threats, because we should remember that in terms of the planet, it's no longer covered with rainforest and pristine wilderness. It's mostly farmed. So what farmers do to address these threats is absolutely crucial. And one of them, of course, is uh, biodiversity declines. And if you look at agriculture, the way in which farming has contributed towards the declines is huge. I would say that the decline in genetic diversity of both crops and animals in agriculture, both nationally and globally, is catastrophic. And I am part of that problem. I mean, I'm, I'm using AI uh, because we choose super bulls from all over the world to so-called improve our, our Ayrshire cows. And when I was a carrot grower, I was using F1 hybrids. And if you look at the vegetables, the grains from the livestock that are being produced on British farms today, the gene pool is infinitely narrower than it was when I started farming. And I think we need to be mindful of that in our response to gene editing, which surely can only exacerbate this narrowing of the gene pool. So on those grounds alone, we are strongly opposed 
to further refinement of the very narrow gene pool which is already at our disposal. I also happen to think that the plant scientists who have probably world-leading expertise in this country are taking a wrong response to the threats which we are currently facing. So if we look at, say, uh, plant diseases, yes, we could probably splice the genes, edit the genes, and in confer short-term resistance to some of the diseases which are threatening arable crops. But the underlying reason is specialisation, monoculture, over-fertilisation, and too much use of pesticides. So really, if we're gene editing, we're treating the symptoms, not the causes. And I think that's a crucial point, that we need to think about ways in which we can produce crops and animals which promote their health and their immune systems and their ability to withstand pest and disease challenges. And I think the plant breeders have lost sight of that. They're still thinking about the old messages, oh, we must farm more efficiently to feed the world. When in fact, feeding the world in a nutritionally dense way is not related to gene editing, it's related to best addressed by fundamental changes in our farming practice. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess this quite strong movement we're seeing towards regenerative agricultural practices is just a reflection of that and I think as you say it's not the farmer's fault and that and there's a lot more farmer-based research going on nowadays and they're sort of leading the research rather than just being a part of it. Yes farmers are the best researchers and if you think about the land race varieties of grains that was a wonderful interaction between farmers and growing mixtures of grain crops, allowing them to adapt to the external conditions and then selecting those crops to grow in the future. And I think that approach, or the approach that the Victorians took towards their vegetables, look at the diversity of vegetable crops that the Victorians grew, all open-pollinated varieties, we've lost that uh, diversity. And farmers instead have become commodity slaves, producing crops at ever lower prices of questionable quality which is not their fault because that's what they're being encouraged to grow at the cheapest possible price we need to stand up against that and it's great that this regenerative farming movement is now arising challenging the old orthodoxy one of the concerns for farmers might be is that we're kind of seeing a lot of other countries having similar discussions to the uk when it comes to gene editing and gm um, policy and a few countries are already growing gene-edited crops. So a lot of farmers might be worried that if we did stick with the policy we already have, that we might end up just getting left behind. I think the opposite. I think if we uh, hold out against gene-edited crops, we will gain market advantage because I think most consumers have an intuitive fear now, partly because of the first generation of GM crops, uh, that actually messing with nature, when in fact we should see ourselves as being part of nature and farming in harmony with nature, is not the right course to take, particularly with these crises that I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion. So I think we can gain market advantage by claiming to be a country which does not introduce gene-edited crops. Yeah. And... Final question, we've kind of covered this a bit already, but how would you like to see the government supporting more sustainable food production, particularly um, kind of in light of this gene editing consultation? Well, I don't know where the uh, 
consultation originated, whether it was in number 10 or maybe at Oxford University or one of these great sort of bastions of, you know, uh, upholding the belief in the white heat of new technology. Who knows? But I think the government's apparent attitude towards gene editing uh, is completely at odds with the emergent new direction of both the public and the farming community that recognise that our best response to the climate crisis, uh, to the biodiversity crisis, is to change our farming methods away from chemical uh, dependency towards working with nature, uh, with a biological base, and breeding plants and animals that become adapted to the place where they are grown and they live. That is the new direction of agriculture, and I think that uh, for trade reasons, for market reasons, and for good, solid public health reasons, as well as environmental biodiversity, that's the sensible course to take. And I guess time will tell. Well, I suppose there is an issue. Uh, One way in which time will tell is how the supermarkets respond uh, to the letter which we co-signed urging them to consider their position before they stop gene editing products. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they respond, but my guess is that one by one, they will want to reassure their customers by saying they don't want to stock them. And if that is the case, uh, then farmers should think very carefully before they grow them. And that is exactly what our next speaker is going to tell us more about. Thank you for your time. Okay, no problem at all. Now, I'm very interested in our next guest's thoughts because I think this is probably the most important factor in the whole debate, and that's whether consumers will accept gene-edited food or not. So, I've got Dr Catherine Price, postdoctoral research assistant at the University of Reading, and she studied the public debate over GM foods extensively, as well as the role that the media plays in this. Hi, Catherine. Now, I'm a bit intrigued because when I spoke to your colleague, he said he believes the way DEFRA has handled the consultation could spell disaster for consumer acceptance of gene editing. But we'll save that for a bit later. So, so, So first of all, I've spoken to a number of farmers who are fine with the technology itself. A lot of them are quite excited about it, but they're understandably quite wary about compromising markets and things like that. Um, I know not a huge amount of research has been done into differentiating consumer opinions on gene editing compared to GM, but what are your thoughts on how consumers view gene edited food? To be honest, um, I mean, I know gene editing is very different to genetic modification, but I think from the consumer's perspective, they're very much linking the two together. And I think part of that issue comes down to the fact that for some people they see gene editing as almost like the back door um, for genetic modification and I think also um, there are lots of similar issues I think that people will have with gene editing as what they had with genetic modification Um, like if you said to a lot of people about genetic modification the the first thing they would say was like a Monsanto Um, and it's that thing of like actually who has power in the food system um for a lot of people that's a big concern as much as like you know like that you've always got like this frankenstein food thing with genetic modification but it's not you know it's it's far more complicated than 
than that, that you've got, like, um, the ethics issue as well. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that's still going to be the same with gene editing as what it was with genetic modification. What do you think is influencing that opinion? I thought it was interesting to see the mainstream media's stance on gene editing this time round. Um, I would say that a lot of the stories I read in sort of national newspapers were fairly pro-gene editing in comparison to what we've seen in the past when it comes to GM. Yeah, so I think... Perhaps at the moment, and perhaps part of like how, with like the DEFRA consultation, um, I think probably because you had George Eustace as well in, in, you know, in the news, I think perhaps so far we've just looked at, you know, like how, like the positive benefits of it. I think perhaps now as well, um, we're starting to see some of like the NGOs um, who are, more like well i mean at one time they were very anti genetic modification and gene editing Mm -hmm. and i think they've actually tried to move in the last few years trying to move away from like this polarized debate of being anti or pro and i think they're now seeing um like with this consultation i think they're seeing you know where's it actually leading to Um, and i think you might start to see perhaps before too long the media picking up on the campaigns they're running um, because I know like the co-op have now come out like the co-op supermarkets have now come out and, and said that they won't actually stock anything that, that's gene edited like any gene edited products yeah so if if they start if you start having a move with the supermarkets I think you then might start to see the media reacting to that um, and then start to have perhaps a lot more negative coverage I think it depends on what happens with the supermarkets I think yeah yeah definitely i mean one of my questions was going to be what would drive more consumers to get on board but it sounds like really again the supermarkets are going to dominate the debate here yeah um and i think this is also part of the problem and i know we'll probably come on to it later this is also part of the problem with like the death for consultation um because sometimes if you leave like especially with like food policy if you leave it to like the big supermarkets it's it's almost like the supermarkets drive what we're doing rather than government and like food like their food policy their regulations it's very difficult once it starts to move that way to bring it back yeah and do you think there's anything that consumers might like to hear about gene editing um or that will kind of drive them to think more positively about it um i know that ahdb have done a bit of research on consumer views on gm and one of the big concerns was human health which is interesting because for the scientists that's not really a concern that they have when it comes to these kind of um crops so do you think maybe the environmental angle might make people change their views or yeah, the, the environmental angle is an, an interesting one because I think you're going to have almost like two sides of the debate there. Yeah. Um, I think people would see, you know, the benefits of it, especially if, like, um, with climate change, I think they would understand, you know, we probably have to do some aspects of gene editing as we're moving towards, like, trying to get to, like, net zero. Um I think people would see that, but also on the flip side, I think people do have concerns about what harm 
gene-edited crops could do to the environment. I think they would want to see a, like an open and transparent debate and all issues put forward, you know, so like there's this transparency. And when it comes to farmers... I would say a majority that I've spoken to were certainly quite pro um, the technology, but obviously there's a lot of people that aren't. So do you think that uptake from farmers is going to be fairly fast or do you think they'll approach it quite cautiously as well if we are allowed to start growing gene-edited crops? I would. I mean, I think it's quite difficult with for farmers really because it all depends on what, consumers want yeah and i think you know if the supermarkets aren't going to stock products because the consumers don't want it you know where is you know where is the market for farmers to grow it you know there's a fine line with with farmers and i think perhaps almost with them as well with like with a lot of technologies sometimes they're only considered as consumers rather than including them all along the decision-making process, so perhaps almost almost like now, with what we should have done with, with perhaps with a consultation, is talk to farmers now. Yeah. You know, and and send what their views are. And then moving on to the consultation, what do you think to the way the consultation's been handled? I think it could have personally. I think it could have been handled better, and I think part of the problem is that it's. Um, for England only and not UK wide um, and I think it should have perhaps been UK wide and just thinking about like um, with genetically modified crops and Scotland they have always been very much opposed to like genetic modified crops if there's this the thing between like the devolved nations I mean what how is that actually going to play out like if we do proceed with gene edited crops in England how's it going to affect like the devolved nations and I think that's something that perhaps should have been taken on board and I think the consultation itself like some of the questions they're actually quite difficult you know members of the public to actually answer they're quite technical yeah um and they're also framed in a way that like we want you to talk about this and they're not actually in, framed in a way where people can say what they're actually concerned about. You know, it's it's very quite scientific almost and I think that might put some people off. Um, you know, you've got to have transparency in order to get people's trust, which is, you know, how you can proceed with, like, gene-edited crops. You've got to have people's trust. And if, you know, if you haven't got that in the first place, they're always going to be very wary of it. It's interesting that you say that because somebody else commented that the consultation is purely based on what the science has to say, which of course is good for getting really solid evidence on things like safety. But as you say, it's the consumer that's going to actually really make that decision at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, what you know, what bothers consumers isn't necessarily like regulation. They want to know what these gene edited crops are going to do what what benefits are there and also what are the risks you know that that will be important to people um you know and i think people value farmers mm. you know and what i've always seen like with certainly with gene like with genetic modification is that farmers have never been blamed for bringing in genetic modification there's never been any blame placed on farmers i think people respect how farmers produce food and I think that's something that's that sometimes gets forgotten 
in like these these consultations we're forgetting what but you know it's, it's values that people place on on things not necessarily like scientific aspects is what people believe and value and that, that's really important especially around food yeah that's so true and I guess that's why it makes it such a complex debate thank you Catherine okay thank you very much that's all we've got time for but hopefully today's podcast answered some of your burning questions around what gene editing might mean for the arable sector i'm sure it also generated a load more questions it certainly did for me but we'll save them until we know the outcome of the consultation don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and if you really enjoy it then please let us know by leaving a little review and tell us why see you next time Thank you.